Hello, my name's Tony Dunn. I'm the head of the Design Interactions Department at the Royal College of Art. And I'm going to take you on a tour of the EPSRC Impact Exhibition that's just opening today. Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 16th of March. Today, the much-trumpeted Labour fight back is thrown into doubt by a new Guardian ICM poll, which shows the Tories extending their lead. A strong Labour government's very unpopular. I think only 18% of all voters wanted that. 29% want a strong Tory government, and 44% want a hung parliament. Schools are accused of breaking the law by spying on their pupils. As frequently monitored by CCTV cameras as inmates are in prisons and as customers are in airports. The Israeli ambassador to Washington says relations with the US are at their worst for 35 years. The confrontation is so sharp and so bitter and so sudden that the Israelis will have to back down in order to appease American anger. Our design critic Jonathan Glancy on why we should rebuild the Euston Arch and get railway architecture back on track. This is a kind of um, almost communist era East European chic now. And a new exhibition on how today's science might affect the designs of the future. A fifth dimensional camera is a fictional device that captures images from parallel worlds. First, our top story, the Guardian ICM poll. Gordon Brown's unpopularity is still harming Labour's election chances. Julian Glover says the gap between the two main parties has grown to nine points. The poll shows the Tories doing fairly well. They're on 40%. That's up uh, three from the last Guardian poll in February, up a little bit since some other ICM polls too. Labour on 31. So better than last summer, better than their low point, but not perhaps increasing anymore, um, although it is up one on the last Guardian poll, and the Liberal Democrats are on 20, which is uh, around the middle of their normal performance and quite solid for them. Will the Conservatives be a bit relieved that there's not a further narrowing of their poll lead that we've seen in recent months? Yeah, I think they'll be pleased by this, um, and Labour will be perhaps a little disappointed. The other thing I wonder whether we should just talk about is, is whether it really blows apart some of the ideas we've had of politics over the last few months. There's been a lot of talk of narrowing and a lot of talk of hung parliaments, and that's really come from different polling companies being compared to each other. Uh, if you just look at the ICM figures, the best way to do it really is to take one company and compare that company's figures now with that company's figures uh, a while ago. ICM hasn't shown very much change at all. The Tory party has been more or less on 40%, plus or minus three, since uh, early November. Labour, plus or minus two on 30 since October. And the Lib Dems, plus or minus two on 20 since October. So there hasn't been as much change as everybody uh, likes to say, at least in ICM. Some other companies have been different. And maybe the feeling is there's been a lot of media excitement. We've got bored of Cameron being the story, so we decided to make Brown the story. Um, there's been Bullygate, and then there's been um, the sort of fight back. There's been hung parliament talk. doesn't necessarily mean anything to voters. There has been a lot of talk about hung parliaments. Uh, what do the voters think about the prospects of that? Uh, the, we did a question uh, asking a hypothetical, always tricky, of course, to ask how you feel about something in the future. Um, but we asked people, do you want a strong Labour government, a you know, big majority, a strong Tory government, or maybe some kind of hung parliament in the middle with the Lib Dems playing a role and influencing the government. And strong Labour government's very unpopular. I think only 18% of all voters wanted that. That doesn't bode well for Labour in the campaign. Um, Tories, 29% want a strong Tory government, and 44% want a hung parliament. Now, of course, not everybody knows what a hung parliament means, but it does show there is a a sense of, of a coalition perhaps being something people would welcome rather than fear. 
And finally, Julian, uh, not connected to today's poll, but do you think the uh, programme with Trevor MacDonald and David Cameron on Sunday night will have helped the Conservatives' cause? It's probably true that when David Cameron's on TV, the Tories do better. Um, Labour would hope the same was true of Brown, but maybe it isn't. So that programmes like that, although they're a bit embarrassing and political journalists don't really like them because they seem soft and don't ask tough questions and it's not always nice to see people's wives paraded on TV as a reason to vote for them. Generally, to the extent voters notice them at all, they might just feel a little bit warmer. Um, Although there is one danger for Cameron in particular in doing such things. Uh, Gordon Brown needs to show his soft side. We all know he's a kind of tough guy, but he needs to show he's a nice guy underneath. David Cameron, his big risk, I think, is that he looks a bit weak, a bit of a mummy's boy. People think, well, is he really up to being prime minister? Is he tough enough? And programmes like that can just add to the feeling. Somebody talking about doing the washing up and that sort of thing can undermine them rather than make them look homely. Nonetheless, in today's poll, he's well ahead of Brown as the person people think is the preferred prime minister. Julian Glover, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website today, the new Football Weekly podcast considers the future of David Beckham. James Richardson is joined by sports writer Rob Smythe, who says we should get David Beckham's injury into perspective. Beckham's a good man, and if this is the end of his career, that's obviously genuinely sad. But it would be a bigger blow to England's hopes of winning the World Cup, such as they are, if ML Hesker were injured. Beckham was going to contribute, what, 20 minutes maximum per game. He might have had an influence, but a very, very small one. While it is very sad, I, I don't know, see, I don't know what people think they're sad about. Is it the end of the career? Yes, that's very sad. The World Cup? It's not really. I'm outside London's Euston Station, which until the 1960s was the site of a monumental arch, a landmark that symbolised the railway age of the 19th century. But with Euston earmarked as the capital's main terminal for a new era of high-speed trains, the station's going to be redeveloped, and the Euston Arch could rise again. With me is The Guardian's design critic, Jonathan Glancy. Uh, Jonathan, Euston Station 2010 version, we've got six lanes of traffic going past, it's a rather dispiriting spot, isn't it? Well, it is. Is, sadly, Euston Road was originally built as sort of a grand Georgian road, as a kind of relief road in the 18th century. But then it had horses and carriages going along it and, and soldiers on horseback. Now, of course, it's buses, cars, motorbikes, police cars, taxis, vans, and it's a hell of a street. It's glum, miserable, it's monumentally horrible, um, even on a sunny day. But when the Euston Arch was here, this great Greek, neo-Greek gateway, it's a huge, beautiful, great um, piece of neo-Greek architecture. It really lifted the place up. So the Euston of 150 years ago was rather lovely, but in 1962, bang, down it came, down went Euston Station, and the street became rather miserable again. It was very controversial, wasn't it, the demolition of the Euston Arch? Demolition was hugely controversial. The uh, go-ahead, really, for the demolition was sort of given and not given by a gross act of indifference by the then Tory Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan. Interestingly, he allowed it to go ahead because it was, you know, a big issue. This was, uh, so many people had complained. Um, The uh, campaigners were led by uh, John Betjeman, of course, who became the Poet Laureate, who loved the building, as did most Londoners. But in those days, the popular voice went unheeded. Bang, down it went. Now, what happened to it in the intervening years? Because the the bits of it still exist, don't they? Really interesting. Various bits of the arch, which is made up of big stones, big granite stones, were um, chucked 
around the River Lee. So they ended up in the River Lee. Um, but, you know, a demolition merchant got the job lots and taken away and threw them in the river. Well, they were later rediscovered by the architectural historian Dan Cruikshank, who's led the Euston Arch Trust and has campaigned like John Betjeman did to save the arch. Dan's been campaigning to rebuild the arch. And as you say, there are now these plans to rebuild the arch and the station is going to be redeveloped. Um, at the moment, it's a sort of 1960s. I mean, it's, I quite rather like it in some ways, just probably because probably I'm just used to it. But uh, is, it, is, it, is this all going to go? Well, I know what you mean. You know, this is, it will go. This is a kind of um, almost communist-era East European chic now. It's got a kind of style that we look at. And we think of all those 1960s spy movies. Uh, we think of Ber the remnants of East Berlin, and we think, actually, they've got a certain appeal. But I'm afraid it will go, and for practical reasons. The station needs to be redeveloped because of the new high-speed line, which will take the trains to Birmingham in 45 minutes and on to Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow. Um, and that's going to be... This existing station will not cope with that, so it has to be rebuilt. The big danger is, though, with this. Will the station be the most special, beautiful, imaginative new railway station in Europe? Let's alone Brooklyn, which it ought to be, or will it be a great big shopping mall, airport style shopping mall, with the Euston Arch in front, in which case it wouldn't be so good. But if you get a really, truly thrilling 21st station with the wonderful Victorian Euston Arch in front, I think the marriage between them will be a great one. And the spot that we're standing, which is sort of just between two uh, stone gatehouses, I suppose, gatehouses, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, this and, the, and the, the, the rebuilt Euston Arch would be between these gatehouses, but that, that isn't the original spot, is it? No, it's actually further back. Um, what we're looking at now, uh, the current Euston station um, is projected forward because of these big office blocks and the bus station in front. The existing Euston station was behind there. There was another street that ran behind here, which has disappeared. If you look at your old A to Zs of London, you'll see the arch stood in the street at the back. That's long gone. Uh, but there is a big plan as well, led by the architect Terry Farrell, to rebuild or to improve, that's the right way of saying it, the whole of the Euston Road, including Euston Station, so this will become a great, wonderful avenue or boulevard. I mean, it takes a lot of imagining. Yeah, it does, really. Jonathan Clancy, many thanks. Schools are breaking the law by using CCTV cameras to monitor pupils. That's according to Salford University researchers. Our reporter, Jessica Shepherd, has the details. The majority of schools in England, um, mainly sort of secondary schools, are breaking the law in terms of their use of CCTV cameras. And we know that um, most schools actually do have CCTV cameras, um, and this study claims that pupils in secondary schools are as frequently monitored by CCTV cameras as inmates are in prisons um, and as customers are in airports. Why do schools need CCTV? Well, they, they say it's for a variety of reasons. Um, some is sort of for protecting the pupils. Uh, sometimes it's uh, to monitor behaviour. Um, for some, they say that they can um, monitor good practice um, and make sure that sort of teachers who are perhaps underperforming uh, watch the classes um, taken by the best teachers. And who monitors the cameras? Um, it's usually sort of IT technicians in schools. Are they breaking the law by not telling the pupils or is, it, is there some other way that they should be making this uh, monitoring by CCTV uh, known? Who else? Should, who should they be telling about this? Well they have to um, make sure that pupils know that CCTV cameras are there perhaps by sort of a sign around the CCTV area and they are not doing that. That's what this um, study claims. Part of the problem is also that the law is very vague. So it says that the data that's captured should um, not be excessive. But obviously that's a very subjective comment. Um, and according to many people, um, the way schools are going about capturing uh, images is excessive. 
Is there any evidence that CCTV does protect pupils and staff? Because it's a sort of area of controversy, really, isn't it? It is. Uh, I mean, this study claims that... um, No, there isn't any evidence and teaching unions have said the same. Um, I think that um, companies who have invested interest in CCTV cameras say that they have had very good feedback uh, from schools and that uh, the schools have found the CCTV cameras do help in terms of uh, monitoring behaviour. Jessica Shepherd, how might the research currently being undertaken by British scientists change the lives of future generations? Impact is the name of an exhibition opening today which attempts to answer that question. Anthony Dunn, Head of Design Interactions at the Royal College of Art, showed us round. The project aims to connect 16 designers and design groups with 16 research projects going on around the um, UK. And it's very important that it's not really about simply just communicating what the scientists are doing or trying to predict the future, but more trying to look at a whole range of different possibilities and impacts the research might have on society. So some of them are a little bit obscure, some of them are dark, and and others kind of celebrate the more positive aspects. Um, project by Tour van Balen and the um, Synthetic Biology Institute at Imperial College looks at the idea of externalizing your um, immune system. So basically it consists of a series of fairly small egg-sized glass flasks on the table all interconnected with tubes um, and a little bowl and then a mouthpiece. And the idea is that each night you would um, take a little bit of your blood and drop it into the bowl, mix it with some sugar and water, and this would be used to feed um, different uh, yeasts and cultures in in some of the glass um, forms. And at the same time, they would sort of, um, I guess, monitor your blood. And if there's a particular deficiency or something that needs to be put right, they'd start to manufacture, um, the, I guess, the chemical that's going to um, repair that. Then in the morning, you'd come down, put this mouthpiece on, and basically some of the appropriate chemicals will be taken into your body. My name is Anab Jain and I'm a designer. Our project's called a Fifth Dimensional Camera. What's a Fifth Dimensional Camera? A Fifth Dimensional Camera is a fictional device that captures images from parallel worlds. There are diverging timelines. And what this camera does is, if you stand in front of it and fire it and leave it on for a day and come back, it would have taken the picture of you as you had stood in front of it, but alongside it taken pictures of all the parallel worlds that might have happened during the day. Over here we have um, a piece by Revital Cohen called uh, Phantom Recorder, and she's been working with a group of scientists who've been developing um, interfaces between the body and um, prosthetic limbs. So in this case, a person is sitting down in front of a computer and they have this harness strapped to their chest, with a large glass um, dome over their um, missing arm. And it's creating a microclimate which is stimulating the sensations of the phantom limb and those electrical signals are being recorded. So at a later date, the person can play back that feeling and feel again um, how their phantom limb felt. Impact is at the Royal College of Art in Kensington in West London.
Relations between Israel and the United States are at a 35-year low. That's what the Israeli ambassador to Washington has said. His comments came after Israel's announcement of plans to build 1,600 homes in occupied East Jerusalem. The announcement was made during a visit to Israel by the US Vice President Joe Biden. Ian Black's The Guardian's Middle East editor. This is a bad one in terms of relations between Israel and the United States. The, the snub, as it was perceived, to the Vice President Joe Biden in Jerusalem last week was a really in-your-face thing to do. Now, whether that happened, the announcement of new housing units being built in East Jerusalem, whether that happened by accident or by design, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that this crisis has exposed a real confrontation over one of the most sensitive core issues when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it seems hard to imagine that the United States is going to pass over it in silence. In fact, we've seen pretty angry words already over the weekend, suggesting that we're in possibly uncharted territory in terms of that relationship. Will America take action against Israel if Israel goes ahead with these planned settlements? Well, what I think is most likely to happen is that the confrontation is so sharp and so bitter and so sudden that the Israelis will have to back down uh, in order to appease American anger. I think the next stage is saying, well, if that doesn't happen, will the Americans do something that really will rock this relationship in a more fundamental way? It seems to me that this is a situation where if the Israelis want to retain their special relationship, the very favourable special relationship with the Americans, they are going to have to back down. Now, that may be done quietly in a way that allows Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, to save face, but it doesn't seem to me that he has any choice but to to, to back down from this announcement of new housing in East Jerusalem and, and hope that things will get back to normal. What's Israel playing at trying to alienate its most powerful ally? Well, I, I, there's an interesting question of whether it was trying to alienate it or whether this was just an accident. But what I think has happened here is that, again, whether it was deliberate or, or accidental, this announcement highlights the fact that over Jerusalem there is no agreement. Um, Israel unilaterally annexed East Jerusalem and then expanded the boundaries of the city way back after the 1967 war. That's a different situation from the West Bank, which Israel has never annexed. It's certainly planted settlements all over it. But there's a very significant difference, both legally and politically, if you like, between the two situations. And what's happened here is that this clash has highlighted the fact that over this really, really core issue, there is no um, there is no agreement between these two close allies. You can talk about negotiations with the Palestinians, and those are on-off. They're not going anywhere at the moment. They've been set back again by this latest uh, move. But the Israeli position over East Jerusalem suggests that there is no room for real negotiation over that. Uh, and that's not a position that is acceptable to anybody else in the world, including the Americans. So that's the significance of what's happened at this point. Um, so I think that the Israelis will have to back down in some way. Ian Black. Guardian Daily was produced today by Andy Duckworth. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>